This program is sponsored by the Codley Foundation, based in Los Angeles, California. The Codley Foundation is dedicated to advancing science for the benefit of humanity. I'm Alan Alda, and this is Science Clear and Vivid. Conversations about curiosity, discovery, and innovation. Memory recall is not like when our we're bringing up a file on our computer. We don't access a direct record and put it back exactly the way it was. I think the fact that our later experiences and later interpretations, the fact that they do modify what we remember, it really raises questions about uh, what memory is for and, and how, how important is it that our memories be accurate to when they were experienced versus how important is it that we be able to flexibly update our memories so that they are keeping up with our changing view of the world afterwards. That's Daphne Shohami. She has a fascinating take on how we create memories and how we constantly update them without even realizing we're doing it. And she shows how memories are crucial, not only for recalling where we put our keys or remembering our first kiss, but also for shaping our decisions, even our curiosity. This is really great to be talking with you about this because memory is one of the things that interests me the most. It seems to affect every part of my life. And that, that's, that's part of your research, isn't it? That how, how memory is so pervasive in everything we do. Yes, exactly. And it, it's great to be here talking with you about this because it, it is, I think, really one of the very exciting conclusions of some of the recent advances uh, in memory research. We used to think of memory as sort of a separate cognitive module that was uh, distinct from any other functions of our, our thought and our minds. And I think one of the exciting things to realize in, in research and in life is, is exactly how pervasive memory is, that it's really not just about creating a long-lasting record of an event from the past, uh, but that is very much uh, sort of a behavioral whisper, a source of information that helps us deal with the present, it helps us understand what we're seeing and doing, and helps us make plans for the future as well. That's so interesting because we think of memory as a kind of a roadmap for the past, but Two things about it that I've that I think I've learned about memory, partly from your work, is that it helps you plan for the future, but it also isn't it a roadmap that that's constantly changing by how often you uh, consult it and the way you consult it. Yes, exactly, and I, I think you know these two issues you're you're touching upon are particularly interesting because many of us have felt the frustration uh, with our own memories as not being as accurate sometimes as we would like them to be. But when we think of the role of memory as a function that helps us uh, deal with the moment and make plans for the future as kind of um, something much more um, flexible and pervasive, then we want it to be updated, right? A, a function that should carry us into the future and help us make decisions is something that shouldn't necessarily remain um, isolated in the moment it was created, but should be a more dynamically updated and, and, and alive and maybe change as our experiences change. 
And that happens in, in, in multiple ways. One of them, as you pointed out, is that our memories, when we retrieve them right now, are influenced not by only and exclusively what happened when they were formed, but they're also influenced by my state of mind right now and everything that happened between the past and the present. But also, as you say, that, that the retrieval of those memories over time keeps them nimble, keeps them continuously updated. I guess one of the most memorable examples of memory being associated with one of our senses is Proust's book, Remembrance of Things Past, where the main character, every time he ate a Madeleine, I guess it's a cookie, remembered something important to him. And that's important to you. Why why is that story important to you? Yeah, I I love that story. It actually has uh, many layers of significance for me. And uh, one is that when I started my graduate school program, when I started working on my PhD, I I noticed that so many speakers would come to talk about the neurobiology of memory and would start with Proust and with Proust's Madeleine. And I I think it's interesting because it, it sort of captures our everyday kind of quintessential experience of memory, the way we think about it, which is both um, literary, almost romantic, and this idea that we're exposed to a bit of information and a whole full-blown experience comes back to our mind. It's kind of reinstated, almost as if we're reliving it, the way Proust described it. And I think that so much of um, neuroscience research has been inspired by that to understand how that happens. How does it that, how can it be that one crumb of a one cookie in one moment in time can lead our brains to bring back such rich information from a time that's passed you know, many, many years ago, bring back people and stories and, and emotions. So, so part of the interest is really about kind of the motivation and the, and the beauty of memory. Uh, but there's another aspect to that story that I find particularly interesting, which is uh, that, you know, I was reading around, you know, the internet and, and looking up um, some background information uh, on, on how Proust came to this example of memory. Um, and according to what I read, it turns out that uh, people tried to remake the, the, this Madeleine. They tried to relive the, the Proustian experience in, in real life <laughs> by baking a Madeleine and dipping it in the tea and, um, and so forth. And people discovered that when they did that, they were not able to uh, get a crumb out of this Madeleine. They couldn't create the full experience. And he talked about the crumbs in particular? He talked about the crumbs in particular, the crumbs when he dipped it in the tea. Huh. Um, and then apparently there's earlier drafts of the book when um, what's dis- where, where what's described is not a Madeleine, but a piece of dry toast. Huh. Uh, and so he I changed tried- it, he deliberately changed it? Apparently, apparently he deliberately changed it at some point to a Madeleine. Nobody knows um, exactly when or, or, or why. Uh, but this really captured my imagination because I thought, what an interesting example of uh, upgrading uh, a moment to make it more literary and more memorable. And I thought this is a really interesting analogy of something our own memories and our brains do all the time, of this taking a moment, but 
in order to make it memorable, modifying it um, so that it captures something essential about our experiences. Our memories capture something essential, but not necessarily something exactly the way it was. Now, do we modify it consciously or or at a, at a deeper level? Much of this modification happens unconsciously, um, which I think is part of why people argue so often about, you know, what I said, what you said, what actually uh, happened. And you take people who were at the same event and they remember it quite differently. And we know that m- memory is very malleable and, and in fact, not so accurate. And, and I take it that this modification of the original moment the modification of our memory of it occurs every time we recall the moment, dependent on the the mood we're in, the circumstances we're in when we recall it, why we recall it. We may recall it in a more negative way, some negative aspect of it. And that does that c- contribute to the negative memory? Yes, exactly. And as, as you're saying, memories are modified, not just in a passive way, where our brains, you know, kind of um, uh, add and embellish and, and, and turn a toast into a madeleine potentially, but also they're modified depending on how we recall them and the context in which that happens. And it really, it speaks to the fact that memory recall is not what we, it's not like when our, we're bringing up a file on our computer. We don't access a direct record and put it back exactly the way it was. But every time we recall a memory, it's really a constructive process. We're using some information to reconstruct a moment. And so it's a very um, active process. And when we do that, we're essentially creating another new trace. Now we have a trace of what happened originally combined with a moment in which it was retrieved and then um, as, as we refer to, reconsolidated, kind of re-stored re, um, uh, now in a new state that includes both the original memory and modification of that memory and the, mem- and the moment of recall. I think the fact that our later, later experiences and later interpretations, the fact that they do modify what we remember, hmm. it really raises questions about uh, what memory is for and, and how how important is it that our memories be accurate to when they were experienced versus how important is it that we be able to flexibly update our memories so that they are keeping up with our changing view of the world afterwards. We, re- we remember things that turn out to be important in the future and we don't know why at the time we're, we're holding on to that memory. Right. What's going on? Is everything remembered? That seems impossible. You you can't possibly remember every moment of your life. Right. Right. No. I think you're you're pointing to I think what to me is really one of the most interesting mysteries about the importance of memory. You know, we 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 can't remember everything. We have to remember the important things, but very often we don't know in the moment what's important and what's not. So how does the brain um, face this challenge? Um, and one of the things we've been interested in is, you know, just this anecdotal experience of you're, you're wandering in a new city and you're just aimlessly exploring and you discover a fantastic new cafe. 
And you're able to navigate your way back to that cafe successfully the next time. And we think that one of the mechanisms that the brain uses to um, help us use surprising and good outcomes to remember what led to them, even though we didn't know that that particular route we were taking would lead to a great cafe, is something that's called um, replay. So there's um, research, especially in animals, that show when an animal is navigating a maze and finds a reward, that after it consumes the reward, when it's resting or when it's sleeping, neurons in the hippocampus go back and replay the sequence of neuronal firing that they were originally playing when it navigated towards that reward. (laughs) So it's as if there's sort of this continuous buffer of relatively neutral information that's being processed. If nothing happens, it disappears. But if something important happens, then the brain kind of marks that moment as important and goes back and rehearses what led to that important event. That rehearsal is such, obviously it's an interesting word to me because it's in my professional toolbox. But I think of dreams as rehearsals for reality. And here's a rehearsal going on that we're not necessarily aware of even in our dreams. Right, right. And and, and in addition, I, I, not only are we not aware of it, but I think it's really another example of, of editing after the fact of sort of this trade-off between importance and accuracy or kind of how useful we want our memories to be versus how accurate. Because in reality, the first time you were navigating that path, Nothing important happened until it actually happened, but our brain mm. wants to make sure that it's building a, a useful model of the world, not, a, not an accurate one only, or not necessarily. And I wonder if this modification that occurs every time the memory comes back helps us develop a better automatic skill because mm. it gets updated. Is that, is, do you think that's happening? Yeah, I think I think that's a that's a really interesting point, especially because you know when we we started out knowing nothing um, as a field about where memory lives and how they're created, and one of the most important early discoveries was that there are patients like the famous patient H. M. who have damage to the hippocampus and lose the ability to create m- memories of the sort uh, for moments in time, like what they had for breakfast, but they are absolutely able to learn new skills. So so this historic figure whose initials were H.M., historic in the study of the brain, he, he had damage to his hippocampus, did he? Yes, he had very severe epilepsy. And uh, to save his life, a neurosurgeon in, in, in the 50s uh, went in and removed the source of the epileptic seizures on both sides of the brain. And that was localized to the hippocampus and nearby mm. medial temporal lobe regions. And so the surgery at the time removed the that's tissue symmetrically on the right side of the brain and the left side of the brain. And unintentionally led to very severe impairments in this patient in his ability to create new memories. I actually met a version of H.M. Uh, when we did our science show, this person's initials were E.P., mm-hmm. and he had the same problem. He could remember in detail the route he took from his home to his school 60 years ago, but not what you had talked about with him a minute ago. Yeah. But he would have been able, you think, 
to learn a new motor skill? Yes, that's, that's, that's been shown many times that generally speaking, things like there's this uh, really interesting motor skill, you may have tried this called mirror tracing, you have to trace a shape uh, in the mirror, um, so that when you think you're moving right, you really should be moving left. And it, it's very frustrating at first. But... I, I do this experiment every day when I shave. <laughs> So that is that is very difficult to do, and what you get better at it, and you can't articulate why, and uh, you don't know what you're doing to get better at it. And this is in in, in textbooks in, in neuroscience, it's in psychology, has really been referred to as sort of the um, you know the prototypical motor learning task uh, or a skill learning task that you get better at. You can't understand why, but you get better at it. And HM um, and EP showed the same improvement in performance. So they didn't remember that they took the test the day before, but the improvement uh, uh. in the skill was just as robust. When we come back from our break, Daphne Shohami tells me about experiments her lab is doing that show how memory is intertwined with curiosity. This program is sponsored by the Kavli Foundation, with a mission to advance science for the benefit of humanity. The Foundation's mission is implemented internationally through a constellation of Kavli Institutes that support scientists who conduct basic, curiosity-driven research in astrophysics, theoretical physics, nanoscience, and neuroscience and also by the Kavli Prize, which honors scientists for breakthroughs in these fields that transform our understanding of the very big, astrophysics, the very small, nanoscience, and the very complex, neuroscience. And the mission of the Kavli Foundation is also implemented by programs that support public engagement with science, enhancing how society encounters and interacts with science and uses science in their daily lives. This is Science Clear and Vivid. And now back to my conversation with Daphne Shohami. I'm very interested in curiosity. Does curiosity play a role in remembering? Yes, I'm, I'm very interested in curiosity too. And I think it's um, it's something we've started investigating in the lab. And it's, uh, you know, it's so interesting to me when we kind of started. It's not the main thing my lab had been doing, but we started getting really interested in it. And we thought, here's something that's so fundamental to learning and to the human experience and to being a scientist. I mean, I think most of us as scientists are really driven first and foremost by curiosity. And yet as scientists, we don't have a good scientific understanding of how curiosity works. And one thing we see repeatedly um, in, in experiments in the lab is just what a positive effect curiosity has on memory. Mm. And uh, we, when we're curious about something, we're much more likely to remember it. And what's interesting is we've done some experiments um, across different age groups, and you see that beneficial effect of curiosity on memory across all ages, and it's even more robust into older age. So it's like a, a, a gating mechanism that basically an enhancing um, what our memory systems prioritize uh, in the long run. This sounds to me like you're talking about the importance in teaching of curiosity. If you teach 
or attempt to teach something to somebody who's not curious, the chance of their remembering it is lower. And most teaching that I've experienced in my life has been getting me to remember a bunch of things that I wasn't curious about because I didn't know their importance to one another or to my life. Right. And to then test me on my knowledge or intelligence by finding out if I can remember those things that I wasn't curious about is a false test. Absolutely. Especially because, you know, it seems it's the, we, we discovered later as adults, right, that what really matters is not whether you can remember arbitrary things. What really matters is how deeply you can dive into understanding, remembering and learning about the things that matter to you. Um, so I, I completely agree. And, and I think it's changing. I mean, my, my sense, you know, both as a parent and as a teacher is that there's a greater appreciation for curiosity now than, than there used to be in terms of education. Um, and not just of curiosity, but of trying to understand what drives curiosity. So not, not taking it for granted that some people are just happen to be curious about certain things, but what can we do as teachers to drive curiosity and, yeah, and that's really such help an important, scientists. I get asked all the time, how can I help students or children be more curious? Right. What's your answer to that? I think one of the things we're discovering, um, and others have shown as well, is that curiosity is elicited when somebody has a sense of how much they know they don't know. <laughs> so if you just give someone very little information, they know very little about it, they will be less curious compared to if you give them a little more information, just enough for them to realize they know what they don't know. And mm. that, that creates um, sort of an appetite for information, right? It's sort of like sort of like an appetizer for a meal. To give, you have to cr- elicit that state of mind of wanting the information, and that increases the benefit of receiving the information and the likelihood of remembering it. That sort of suggests that there are some people who aren't curious and shy from curiosity, or is it just that you haven't found the right? amount of information to give them. Yeah, I think, you know, for us in the lab, we're really trying, we're really assuming anyone can be curious under the right conditions. We've become interested in kind of the the, uh, kind of curiosity that everybody can experience at different times. And we're just trying to see what does it look like when we elicit it in in all people? Bring in a hundred people, uh, give them a maze to explore or trivia questions. And Mm. when people feel curious, and are willing to put in effort or time to obtain information, we're trying to understand what that looks like in the brain. And one of the things we're finding is that that moment of seeking information and putting an effort to uh, obtain it, among other things, it involves activation in reward-seeking parts of the brain in general, but also in the hippocampus. Mm. And we think that it's sort of priming the hippocampus for better processing, and that's part of the reason that curiosity is able to enhance memory. I have a dim memory that you did an experiment with regard to curiosity uh, and and COVID. What, what, what was that? Yeah, I'll tell you what that was. That was curious scientists trying to deal with their labs being shut down. <laughs> and so, <laughs> um, when the lab was shut down, 
you know, at the very beginning of the pandemic, um, working on um, curiosity with a collaborator, Ron Hassin, and with two uh, students, um, with with uh, Yaniva Beer and and, uh, and a colleague, uh, Caroline Marvin, and um, and we just thought. A, what can we do with the lab shut down? But also we had this feeling, what an interesting moment. I mean, we felt for ourselves, we couldn't consume enough information about this new virus and didn't feel like it was all necessarily relevant to protecting ourselves. We wanted to know everything about it. We wanted to know Mm -hmm. the molecular structure and where it came from and things that were far beyond practical information. And so we thought it would be a really unusual and maybe even a rare opportunity where the entire world is now interested in something and all in a similar state of knowledge. And so we thought uh, we'd, we'd run an experiment to try to look at how much people were interested in information about the virus, information that's useful versus information that's not useful. And that distinction between useful and not useful was interesting to us because there's been some tension in the research on curiosity. Some people assume that for curiosity to be pure curiosity, you have to be interested in something that's useless, Otherwise, it's not curiosity. And some other people have assumed the opposite, that curiosity is really this sort of mental state that helps you obtain useful information. Hmm. So we we thought, here's an opportunity um, to probe that distinction. And we also wanted to ask how much a person's own sense of uh, safety or threat might change the way they become curious about uh, um, COVID-related information, right. and then also about other kinds of information. You could imagine, on one hand, that when we're so consumed with our interest in understanding COVID, that we'd be much less curious about other things like gardening or astrophysics. Um, and what we found, actually, is the reverse. The people who were most curious about COVID um, were also showing this increase in curiosity about other things that had nothing to do, that were useless information had nothing to do with the virus. So instead of having a narrowing effect, it looks like curiosity has kind of a broadening effect on what people choose, what kind of information people choose to consume. So did you find anything that would help us communicate better with uncurious deniers? The piece of information that's most relevant there is that you can sort of um, leverage curiosity. You can use a domain that people are interested in and to kind of get them to explore more in general. And I think this kind of relates to your question about uh, curiosity in the classroom and how do we elicit it. And this idea that if we think of curiosity as a, as a state of mind that's kind of appetitive and exploratory, maybe what we, maybe what we need to, to get people to explore more is not to jump in with the thing that they don't feel curious about, but to kind mm-hmm. of use some other bit of information that we know they're curious about and use that to kind of increase the general state mm-hmm. of curiosity and learning. Did you work with my friend and, and genius Eric Kandel? Yes. I know Eric is very interested in art. As I remember, you did a study comparing our reaction to abstract art to representational art. Was that right? Yes, that's exactly right. Yes. And uh, Eric Eric and, and our, our joint graduate student, Celia um, Durkin, they really developed the idea and they came to me and said, 
you know, collaborate with us. And, and at first I said, yeah, I'd, I'd love to collaborate, but I don't study art. I study memory and decision-making. And, and Eric said, that's what art is. Art is all about memory and decision-making. And we have this really great idea and we, we'd like to bring you along to, to join us. And I'm very glad I got curious about that. And it's been a really fun collaboration. What did you find out? How different is the experience for us when we look at representational art from looking at abstract art? Yeah, well, well, well we really, the, our starting point was really an idea that, uh, you know, Eric and Celia brought to the, to the partnership where they said, look, you know, the interesting thing about abstract art is that it requires that we bring in our own perspective. We have to, um, we have to think about how to interpret this thing in, in front of us. We have to think about what the artist is asking and we have to bring our own memory associations. It's, it, it requires more work, more mental work and more associative work. And so the first thing um, we try to do is characterize what kinds of different decisions people make uh, about abstract and representational art. Do they actually think about them differently? And these days we're actually wrapping up the analysis of a brain imaging study where we're looking at differences in the brain um, when people are uh, observing and making decisions about abstract or representational art. Um, one of the really interesting findings uh, that we're looking at right now, it ha has not been published yet, is um, that um, two interesting findings. One is that when you're looking at abstract art, there are these more associative um, areas of the brain are, are engaged more, and that's maybe not so surprising. But Celia, the graduate student, had a really interesting idea. One way we can analyze brain data is to look at the difference in which parts of the brain are responding to one thing or another. But there's a whole different way we can look at brain data, which is instead of asking which regions show activity more or less activity, we can ask how similar is the activity across people. When you and I look at an apple, do we show similar activity or dissimilar activity? Um, people, for example, have used movies that people watch while they're brain is being scanned. And you can see that people show very, very similar activity across the brain, 30, 40, 100 people, very similar patterns of activity at similar moments in the movie. It's sort of capturing something about how people are processing the narrative. Celia thought we should take this approach but flip it on its head when we look at representational versus abstract art. And her idea was that if abstract art is really so personal, then we should see much less similarity across people's brains mm. when they're looking at abstract art compared to representational art. And that's exactly what we're finding, is there's much more variability in the patterns of activity in the brain when a group of people look at a Rothko abstract art versus if they look at a you know, Renoir, more representational. Maybe it's just people saying, what the hell is this? Is it, <laughs> is it an apple? Is it an orange? I, I, <laughs> so they got different different parts of the brain active trying to figure it out. I think that's a I think that is a part of it, and I think that's a part of it in a, a you know both an amusing way, but also in kind of a deep fundamental way, which is it's something that abstract art poses a little bit of a puzzle, and our solution of that puzzle is going to be individual. Right? Uh, it's going to elicit yeah. different. Um, associations uh, for, for for you and for me. There, there's more openness there. 
I wish I could forget what time it is because I'm having fun talking with you, but <laughs> we have to bring it to a close. But we always end our show with seven quick questions. Are you, are you game? I'm game. Talking about memory, can you remember the first thing you were ever curious about? Oh, that's a good question. You know, I was very curious as a kid, generally speaking. The first thing that came to my mind is that we lived in a house with a basement, and the basement scared me. And I remember when I was three, I had a nightmare. I had a bad dream about the basement, and I became very curious about dreams. My parents said that was just a bad dream, and I thought, wait, what? What's that? What's just? (laughs) (laughs) Exactly. (laughs) Okay, next question. What made you want to be a scientist? Or was it the basement? (laughs) (laughs) You know, I think one of the main things that made me want to be a scientist was um, this idea that we could understand the chaos of the human experience in simple predictable terms. Um, Moved around a lot when I was a kid. My parents got divorced. And I think science was just a place uh, to me of um, purity and order and elegance. Uh, It still is. And I think that that for me was, was the draw, the idea that we could take something messy like human memory and experience or trauma Mm -hmm. or thought or consciousness and if we worked on it hard enough, we could explain it in a very elegant, simple way. Next question. What part of your research do you enjoy doing the most? I think the absolute best part for me is looking at new data with a collaborator or a student. The shared social connection over something new and exciting that we aren't when we're not sure yet what it means and it's like a picture emerging in front of our eyes and it it's confusing but also thrilling and it brings up uh, many new ideas and that that those are the most beautiful moments for me and i guess that leads to the next question as a scientist what's the best moment you've ever had wow i don't know if i can answer that there have been so many I think, again, it comes down to the people. I, I, I couldn't think of one particular moment, but I think seeing, you know, one happened just recently, seeing the students own their science mm. and get excited about it. I think being a graduate student and a postdoc, being a young scientist is challenging and there's a lot of, you know, um, difficult uh, emotions and people get demoralized, but then seeing them in that opposite, seeing, seeing them getting it and getting excited and understanding that they've contributed something, a discovery to the scientific knowledge. That's, that's the best. And what was your worst moment? Hmm. Very worst moment. I had a moment as a postdoc when I thought that I had done something very, very wrong in my data analysis. And I thought the whole past few months had been a waste of time. (laughs) That was absolutely horrible. Um, But it turned out to be okay. What gives you confidence? Time and patience and optimism. 
for me, at least confidence is something that comes and goes. And I, um, I think <laughs> not to be too clever about it, but part of what gives me confidence is the recognition that sometimes it's very important not to have too much confidence as a scientist. <laughs> right? Recognizing that it shouldn't be a static feeling. One should, yeah. one has to lose one's confidence to, to be a good scientist, I think, and then refine it. That's well said. Last question. How do you think we can help more people enjoy a love of science? Well, I think, I can't think of anyone who's done more for that than you have, Alan. I think talking to scientists, giving scientists a platform to talk about their work and not just the details of the findings, but why they love it. Um, I, I, as a policy, agree to talk about science anywhere and to anyone who's willing to listen. Mm. Um, I think that helps. I, I think... I think educating, you know, when I grew up as a scientist, when I was younger, I received no education about communicating my science. And that has changed drastically. Um, I think it has changed within the field and, and we, we need more, more of that. Um, and, but it's been, a, it's been a big change since I've started and a really positive one. Well, you're terrific talking about it. So you're, you're going to make a, a big difference in our understanding of the, the most important thing we carry around, which is our brain. Thank you so much, Alan. Thank you. Thanks so much for taking the time to talk with us today. It's been an absolute pleasure. Thank you. This has been Science Clear and Vivid. My thanks to the Kavli Foundation for sponsoring these conversations about how breakthroughs in science, technology, and medicine often begin with simple curiosity, asking of nature, why is that? Daphna Shohami is a professor of psychology and principal investigator at Columbia University's Zuckerman Institute in New York, where she's also co-director of the Kavli Institute for Brain Science. This episode was edited and produced by our executive producer, Graham Shedd, with help from our associate producer, Jean Chimay. Our sound engineer is Erica Huang, and our publicist is Sarah Hill. You can subscribe to our podcast for free at Apple Podcasts, Stitcher, or wherever you like to listen. On the next Science Clear and Vivid, I talk with Anna Pajajski. With a Ph.D. in materials science from Oxford University, she was fluent in the atomic and quantum mechanical details that determine the properties of materials, materials like glass and steel and paper. But that wasn't enough for her. Actually being able to experience the materials properties that I knew about theoretically um, really brought material science alive for me. So when I was trying glass blowing, to feel the, the glass transition, when glass goes from being a solid to more like a liquid, when it gets runnier and runnier with temperature, I knew all the theories of that, but I'd never felt it before. And actually being able to feel that science happening really brought it all alive for me. Anna Pajajski, author of Handmade, A Scientist's Search for Meaning Through Making, next time on Science Clear and Vivid. For more details about Science Clear and Vivid, and to sign up for my newsletter, please visit alanalda.com. And you can also find us on Facebook and Instagram, at Clear and Vivid, and I'm on Twitter, at Alan Alda. Thanks for listening. Bye-bye. <laughs>